Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. Play. I am your uncle who's left you a mansion in the will. All you have to do is spend the night. And I am a creature whose yellow skin scarcely covers the work of muscles and arteries beneath. It's Halloween, babes. It's spooky season, and as a pair of uh, pretty goth kids, it's the time of the year where we really come into our own. It's also the time of year that we can start, you know, redecorating, because they have all the skull merchandise in the shops. Just, you know, spooky stuff. It's good all year, but now's the best time to buy. In service to that, we've managed to collect some spooky, scary science to talk to you about. The spooky, scary science will send shivers down your spine. Don't go any further than that, or we will get copyright problems. Mm. So let's kick things off with a piece of research from Massachusetts General Hospital. And this is dated back to August, but I think it's really the best time to talk about it now. The role of the amygdala in the experience and perception of fear. <laughs> now, it has been assumed for quite a while that the amygdala, which is one of the many parts of your brain central to the experience and perception of fear, especially after studies done in the 1990s of a patient with a rare condition specifically affecting the amygdala, but it might be more complicated than that. That historic case that you mentioned, someone who had a affliction of the amygdala, was observed as someone with a newfound willingness to approach snakes and dangerous mammals. And in monkeys, whose temporal lobes, including the amygdala, had been removed, this was found to be a similar shared experience that they lost all fear. The new research, published in Trends in Sciences, Lisa Feldman Barrett of the Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Psychiatry, writes that the role of the amygdala can also be linked to the perception and expression of fear. It now appears the amygdala, it's about the size of an almond tucked away deep in your squishy bits, is actually involved in your own ability to attend the whites of another person's widened eyes. If something shocks you or scares you, then suddenly your eyes dilate to let in more light and try and figure out if maybe there's a way of escaping the terrifying situation you find yourself in. What has previously been taken to be the amygdala being a place where fear actually happens in your brain, it's more that... It helps you to read the facial expressions of the other people around them and to compute from that whether you should be scared. So if you're, you know, if you walk into a situation and there's an animal that you're not familiar with and you can see and understand that the expressions on other people's faces are of them being scared, you know, they've got wide eyes, they've got tense postures, then you are very likely to respond in the same way because that's how humans are as social animals. We do the empathetic thing. And the same goes for monkeys. Whereas if you can't compute that, if you walk into a room and as far as you can tell, everyone's calm with this strange animal, then okay, I guess, I guess that's a, a neutral animal, which is absolutely fine to hang out with. Okay, so in horror film terms, the first person who walks into an abandoned motel on the side of the road and says, oh, come on, I'm sure everything's fine, and is almost certainly going to be the first to die. They are the amygdala-deficient member of the party. If we're going to assume that every person in a horror movie has a different brain injury, then yes, absolutely. If not at the start, then... A lot of them by the end, certainly. <laughs> Some of them, the brain injury <laughs> is removal. <laughs> Just like, abs absolute gone. 
Yeah, at that point, I, would, I don't know that we'd call it a brain injury. I mean, the entire, the rest of the brain might be perfectly intact. I mean, it could be very much intact, but removed very yeah. swiftly with the rest of the head. Yeah, the brain is intact, it's just not where it ought to be. <laughs> I've known some people like that. <laughs> and these new understandings of the role of the amygdala in contextualising fear and the mediating role is described by Barrett as a good example of how the scientific method at its best works, that the original hypothesis about the amygdala's role in fear turned out to not be supported after careful study across decades, and now we're learning more. Learning about how to scare you, Dracula. <laughs> so what you're taking away from this is act scared all the time, and other people will also be scared. Keep on rolling with the Halloween theme. Now, the Halloweeniness of zombie ants, it's, I mean, that's kind of a perennial thing. Everyone's heard about the zombie ant thing by now. It was on the first season of Planet Earth. It's been in a couple of other documentaries since. It's the whole premise of The Last of Us video games. But in case you weren't aware of the unpleasantness that is the cordyceps style of fungi, Essentially, they get inside insects and take over their brains. Sometimes they grow funny little antlers out the top of their heads. Uh, the best part is those funny little antlers are the reproductive bodies of the fungus. They erupt and shower spores down onto the forest floor where other ants, insects, whoever, might pick it up and repeat the cycle. Now, I know for you, the problem is less the zombie part and more the brain-eating fungus part. That should be the problem for a lot of people. I know, but you have that particular problem with fungi in general, even when they're not trying to take They're gross and weird, and they don't even taste that nice. <laughs> Slight mycophobia here. Anyway, the brain-taking-over zombification part of that whole cordyceps infection has a whole new horrifying chapter added to it in research that came out from Penn State last year, who found that not only does the fungus Ophia cordyceps unilateralis sensolato, a very specific subset of the cordyceps family, because there's a different species for every insect that it's encountered, and that's terrifying and awful. You know, like parasitic wasps or cold viruses. Lots of them, and they are all terrifying and scary. But in this specific example, the way that the fungus takes over the ant's brain doesn't replace brain matter. It doesn't destroy it and take it over and make it into some kind of remote control drone ant. But it more infiltrates the muscle fibres throughout the ant's bodies and kind of repopulates it from the inside out, wears the ant like an exoskeleton, controlling its movements and controlling behaviour in the brain, but not actually taking away from anything, just wearing the ant, moving the ant, making the ant its brain slave. So, you know, that unfortunate insect might be fully aware of everything that is happening to it. Now, there's some cool science that's gone into this horrifying realisation, described here by lead author Maradel Fredrickson, senior author David Hughes, and co-author Missy Hazen, 
in the Microscopy and Cytometry Facility of Penn State's Huck Institute of Life Sciences. What they did was they took slices of tissue through and and through this infiltrated, infected, corrupted little thing. At a distance of 50 nanometers, and capturing images on each slice, they could basically make a fly-through cross-section of an ant, giving them, quote, a micron-level view of the interaction between the fungus and the host, with incredibly high resolution, an unprecedented view of how a manipulator controls its host. Which is cool, which is neat, which is... Honestly, I'd like to hear and see more about that, but I also don't want to hear and see anything else about that ever again. <laughs> I think Hughes puts it best, even, at the end. We found that a high percentage of cells in the host were fungal cells. In essence, these manipulated animals were a fungus in ants' clothing. He also adds that normally an animal's behaviour is controlled by the brain sending signals to the muscles, but our results suggest that the parasite is controlling host behaviour peripherally, Almost like a puppeteer pulls the strings to make a marionette move, the fungus controls the ant's muscles to manipulate its legs and mandibles. Ew! So, you know, if you were maybe thinking about writing a horror story this year, that's some inspiration you can start with. Okay, three people have already done it, but it is still a deep, deep reservoir of horror which you can dive into. Do check out The Girl With All The Gifts, now a major motion picture, starring Glenn Close and Paddy Considine. So, one of the one of the sexier monsters that are out there, you know, when you think of monsters that people, like, traditionally think are, t- are sexy, I'm not talking about that subset of the internet who want to bang actual, literal monsters. They're the it's ones been that, a good year for them. The ones that everyone sort of agrees are quite a sexy monster. The ones whose costumes that don't really need the sexy modifier on the shelves in the Halloween store. Like, you'll have a <laughs> sexy zombie, a sexy nurse, a sexy... Uh, parking attendant. But you don't need to say sexy vampire, because vampires are already inherently a bit sexy. Which is weird, because sucking blood doesn't seem that appealing. And it turns out, the actual real-life blood-sucking animals out there are real friendly. Not only do they live in quite large colonies and get along, and maybe you even saw on our Twitter feeds a couple of weeks ago that they peer bond and get over traumatic incidents by hanging out with their girlfriends, The latest research from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, who I didn't know had vampire bats. They're just doing some studying somewhere that they do, I guess. Have dug into just how vampire bats can survive on blood, because not only is it not sexy, it's not especially... nutritious. Because, I mean, you're full of blood. You are full of blood. But that's not where most of your food goes in or comes out. So the idea of any other animal relying on it for food means they've got to be utilising it in a very specific way. They're not getting that much in the way of, you know, fibres, starch and sugars out of it. In fact, if we want to break this down, blood consists of 78% liquid. The remaining 22% is 93% protein, only 1% carbohydrate provides very little in the way of vitamins, and if that's any part of your diet, you're regularly exposed to bloodborne pathogens. Not only a five a day, then. Not unless you're in the habit of getting tattoos from kitchen wizards. Don't do that, by the way. You will get hepatitis. So how do vampire bats do it? Well, the common vampire bat, or Desmodus rotundus, which apparently translates as two-thirds of the way around. Maybe that's because the Norwegians had to go two-thirds of the way around the planet to find some? Sure, why not? 
They get by on a very blood-focused diet by having a very special relationship with their own inner world, their own microbiome that exists within their gut that can utilize and digest and make the most of this very specific diet which they're adapted to. And in fact, the research suggests that they had to co-evolve in order to make the most of this diet. Now, this is something which is even evident in human beings. Your own microbiome might make you not so great at eating beans or something else because you don't have the proper makeup of your innards. You know, you're not making the best use of what's going in and it affects what's coming out sometimes as well. That is your microbiome. You have a different microbiome in your mouth and in your ear and on your skin. And it's fascinating, terrifying, weird, small. You're mostly not even your own cells. Your microbiome, in fact, makes up about 90% of the cells in your body. You're 10% you and 90% something else. And when it comes to the bat's microbiome, this commensal relationship of being able to make more energy out of the blood that they are drinking and then providing more energy to the thing that you're living in and then getting more energy from the more food that they are producing for you feeds forwards and forwards and forwards until you have, well, the species of Desmodus rotundus that we all know and kind of think are cute sometimes on Instagram. And there are many, many species of bacteria living inside of them. I love the implication that literally everyone is following at least one vampire bat scientist on Instagram so they can regularly enjoy that content. Those videos are very, very cute. I think the ones you're talking about are fruit bats, not vampire bats. Also cute. But not vampires. If you are a vampire bat scientist with an active Instagram account who wants a shout out, I'm entirely happy to do that. If you'd like to tell us about your experience in working with bats and some of the interesting things that you have learnt about these blood-sucking beasties, then let us know at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. But before that, let's keep going with the vampire theme, but this time in a much more human way. Not especially a happy story from the University of Arizona and their research unearthing a burial site. I love that subtitle, Witchcraft as Disease Control. Now, we don't normally focus on things which aren't exactly science stories, and this is more an archaeology story, but there's a little bit of a lot of disciplines which come into this. Essentially, this unfortunate ten-year-old, which they found at La Necropoli dei Bambini, or the Cemetery of the Babies, they believe had malaria, and therefore, apparently, the people who buried them assumed they were a vampire, placed the stone in their mouth in hopes of, I guess, stopping them rising from the dead. Other bodies recovered from previous excavations at the cemeteries of babies include the body of a three-year-old girl with stones weighing down at the hands and feet. This isn't the only Roman-era burial who's been dug up in a similar situation. In Venice, an elderly 16th century woman dubbed the Vampire of Venice was found in 2009 with a brick in her mouth, and a man from the 3rd or 4th century was buried in Northamptonshire, face down with his tongue removed and replaced with a stone. It's nice to see my hometown getting some recognition. For vampires. Archaeologist David Soren, who has overseen archaeological excavations in the Italian region of Umbria since 1987, says... I've never seen anything like it. It's extremely eerie and weird. Locally, they're calling it the Vampire of Lugnano, 
And if it's creeping out the guy who's been working in excavating this whole cemetery of babies for 30 years, that's, that's pretty spooky to me. Jordan Wilson, a UA doctoral student in anthropology, makes a comment rounding off the press release. Any time you can look at burials, they're significant because they provide a window into ancient minds. We have a saying in bioarchaeology, the dead don't bury themselves. We can tell a lot about people's beliefs and hopes by the way they treat the dead. And if the way they're treating their dead is to cut out their tongues, bury them with a stone in their mouth, very far down, face down even, so if they do wake up, they're facing the wrong way. Oh boy, that gives me the willies. But maybe that's just me. Maybe there's something out there which gives you the spooks too. For lots of people, that could be spiders or snakes. They are probably the most common fears you'll encounter in other people. The research from Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences gives a pretty good reason for that. It seems to be in the human brain to avoid anything that is slippery, slithering, and scuttles. They open the press release mentioning that in industrialised Western countries, the likelihood of you having, in your entire life, encountered a spider or snake that would actually be proper dangerous is pretty slim. Globalisation and international trade has made it more and more of a possibility, but... That's a very reasonable level. I mean, even having barely left the country where I was born, I've never even seen an adder. I've looked for them and I haven't seen them. Up here in the cold, chilly regions of 51 degrees north, people are still spooked by spiders and snakes. In fact, even babies are spooked by spiders and snakes. In this experiment trying to find out how and why people get spooked by spiders and snakes, someone had the unenviable job of trying to scare babies with snakes and spiders, and things that look like snakes and spiders, too. Now, specifically, they showed pictures of flowers or fish of the same size and colour as snakes and spiders, and measured the size of the baby's pupils. So it's going back to that amygdala chat that we were starting off with. Now, specifically, Stephanie Hole, lead investigator of the underlying study and neuroscientist at NPI CBS and the University of Vienna, in constant light conditions, this change in the size of pupils is an important signal for the activation of the noradrenergic system in the brain responsible for stress reactions. And even the youngest babies in the experiment seem to be stressed by these groups of animals. It's kind of been fun work for Stephanie Holt, so thanks to them for being able to sit in a room with like a bunch of crying children, and for me not having to do that. That's a kindness, I guess. That's really the bit you're happiest about. Yeah, that I don't have to be surrounded by crying children. Or spiders. It has been previously established in other studies that babies don't associate pictures of rhinos, bears, other theoretically and actually dangerous animals with fear in the same way as they do snakes and spiders. So the response from even very young babies in this study leads them to suggest that this might be an evolutionary feature. Another quote from Hall further down the press release says, We assume the reason for this particular reaction upon seeing spiders and snakes is due to the coexistence of these potentially dangerous animals and humans and their ancestors for more than 40 to 60 million years, and therefore much longer than with today's dangerous mammals. The reaction which is induced by animal groups feared from birth could have been embedded in the brain for an evolutionarily long time really going back away. It's like, that's almost a geolog- not quite geologic time, but it's up there. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at fears which might have been embedded in us since before human beings, you know, this 
this response might have been present as far back as Lucy. Something else that has probably been with humans for as far back as our ancient ancestors have been able to tell us so far with all of the bits of them that we've dug up is we are capable of getting along, of working in teams, working with tools, of building culture and civilization. And also of taking vengeance on those we feel have wronged us. The dark side of our emotional capacity for memory and building relationships is when that relationship turns sour, then there's a lot of negativity that can come your way. In fact, research from the University of Geneva has dug into just how we can control, suppress, put down those feelings of rage. How do we get past revenge? The answer is, not all of us do. They've specifically looked at what happens inside your actual brain when something has happened which you might want to get revenge for. The way they've been doing this is with a fun game of economics again. Again. You've, you've had some bad times playing Monopoly, I assume. Haven't we all? This is coming back to something which we've talked about in previous episodes, where if you want to study how people feel and react, then rewards and punishment in games are a good way of doing that, because everyone can give a little bit of an emotional distance to, oh, this is either the luck of the game that I'm playing, or this is the action of people I am playing with or against. The Inequality game, developed by Olga Klimeski-Lenz, to trigger feelings of injustice and anger, then goes on to offer the victim of injustice the possibility of revenge. So each player of the game has economic interactions with two other players, which are pre-programmed, but the participant doesn't know that. One offers only mutually beneficial financial interactions, sends nice messages, while the other makes sure only to multiply his own profits, going against the participant's interest and sending annoying messages. You know, that guy. And of course, while you're playing, you're inside an MRI scanner so that the researchers can see what's happening inside your head. There's actually a subtitle into this press release that just says, The Amygdala Again. It keeps coming up, because it is very important. The provocation phase, the part of the game where this aggressive, malign player would antagonise the human player in the MRI and give them reasons to take revenge, was described as crucial in localising the feeling of anger in the brain. The authors narrowed that down to the superior temporal lobe and the amygdala, known mainly for its role in feeling fear and processing the relevance of emotions. When participants looked at a photograph of the unfair, aggressive player, these areas lit up with anger and vengeance. But the prefrontal dorsolateral cortex, or DLPFC, a zone which the authors describe as key for the regulation of emotions and located at the front of the brain, might also light up if that player was deciding to not punish the unfair player. In fact, the team observed that the greater activity in that region during the provocation phase, the less the participants punished the unfair player. Low activity is associated with more pronounced revenge-taking on the unfair player by the participant in the MRI machine. And just for that, 
clockwork orange, dystopian far future flavour, Klemeski Lenz adds at the end, one can wonder if an increase in the activity of DLPFC obtained through transmagnetic stimulation would allow to decrease the acts of vengeance or even to suppress them. You know, just zap the brain. We can make you behave. We can make you good. We can make you just what we want you to be. Just let us in. Let us into your brain, we promise. We're not the cordyceps, oh no. We're scientists. Of course, it might be another unpleasant parasite. Are you saying vamp uh, that scientists are unpleasant parasites? No, dear, of course not. I'd never dream of saying such a thing. Okay, they can definitely hear that eye-rolling. Also, this is literally the plot for Equilibrium, starring Christian Bale. Scientists are parasites, or the story we're about to move on to that I was trying to do a nice smooth segue onto? Uh, the previous one, Suppression of Emotions. Oh, okay. Hmm. Now, whilst cordyceps may be one of the more famous families of parasites which can get into your brain and mess things around, there's plenty to choose from. Others, which keen-eared listeners may have heard of and may have even come up in conversations, Toxoplasmosis gondii. And it'll make mice do things like being attracted to the smell of cat urine and being bold and belligerent, and it's entirely possible that it gives people road rage? And other fun things with parasites. It's a fascinating field filled with horrible horribleness. But one more name that you can add to the list going forward is the parasite Levinsoniella birdie, which doesn't affect humans yet but has been found in increasingly high numbers of the salt marsh amphipod Orchestia grillus. Now what it does to these little amphipods is turns them bright orange and unafraid of wandering out into the open. Normally, the Orchestia grillus is described by one of the authors as small hopping shrimp that subsist by eating dead and decaying algae and other marsh detritus. Dr David Johnson of William and Mary's Virginia Institute of Marine Science if you've been to a beach and picked up a piece of seaweed, you've probably seen their cousins, beach hoppers, flipping about like acrobats. Now, normally the amphipods are brown, and when you pull up dead grasses, they scatter like roaches in a kitchen when you flip on the light, which is a very evocative image. Now, much like the toxoplasma, the whole point for the parasite of changing its host's behaviour in this way is to get it picked off by the other animal it needs to complete the second half of its life cycle. I mean, you've met seagulls around Bristol. They'll eat anything right out of your hand, even if you don't want them to. The idea of gulls being down on a beach and seeing a bunch of hopping orange foo that's almost specifically coloured to say, I'm here, eat me, it's alluring, to be sure. Now, the reason this is relevant to the science that has been being done is explained by Johnson thus. I can see a bottom-up effect in my backyard. The more fertiliser I add, the more beans I grow. More beans means more deer. In our experiment, we were asking, if more fertiliser means more deer, does it mean more ticks too? And so they were adding artificial fertilisers to the salt marsh environment where the amphipods and their parasites typically dwell. And wouldn't you know, it worked pretty much as expected. The prevalence of parasites increased to 13 times higher in nutrient-enriched marshes compared to those that were going unfertilised. And whilst that might not sound like fun for Orchestria grillus, 
Just think of all that extra fertilizer that's being run off fields filled with human food into rivers and lakes and tributaries and all the bits of our own ecosystem, right around where we're doing lots of growing of human food with fertilizer. Whilst this parasite is probably not a threat to us, if I do start turning orange and jumping around trying to attract seagulls, it probably won't look too out of place in Bristol, if we're being entirely honest. Many human parasites, such as those that cause malaria and the West Nile virus, do have aquatic hosts and vectors, and if those parasites respond like these ones do, fertiliser runoff could be kind of an issue. Maybe. Bit of a problem for human health. Hmm. I mean, it kind of already is. Lots of things are a problem for human health. But you know what maybe has saved humanity? If you think it's any of the anthropologists we've been talking about so far, you may be disappointed. If you're listening to us do this whole Halloween episode and think, they haven't done very much Frankenstein stuff yet, you're in for a good time. Now, here's the thing, is I feel like this press release might be rooted on, mm, I mean, at, at the very least an interpretation of the novel, which I don't exactly agree with. It is suggested that the underlying horror of the novel might be the thought of our own extinction as caused by the expanding population of creatures made from dead tissue. It's... it's not what the book's about. No, not as far as I understand it, but according to Nathaniel Dominey, Professor of Anthropology and Biological Sciences at Dartmouth, the way that he's reading into it is that the creation of the creature, often named as Frankenstein's monster, he sees it as an aggressive, competitive species that could take over human habitats, outbreed, outpace, outclass humanity, and possibly pose a biological threat. Now this is based off having read the book at least once upon a time. The creature, having been abandoned immediately after its creation by its deadbeat dad, Victor, corners him on top of a mountain. It's very lonely, and can it have a wife, please? And Victor goes... Yeah, I can do that until he gets about half finished with it, and then sets the second project just on fire and brings down doom upon himself. I don't remember the bit where he made this decision based on the assumption that this pair of creatures might breed wildly when they get down to the Amazon rainforest and overtake humanity. Because you could solve that problem by just not installing ovaries. Like, as handsome as the creature's described as being as perfect in its physiognomy, I don't believe that cadaverous tissue really does meiosis that well. I mean, it's a sci-fi story, who knows where it goes next, but yeah, when you're putting someone together piece by piece, you can definitely take some steps to limit that possibility. And as far as I remember it, the decision to destroy the second creature was actually based on assuming that she would turn out to be as evil as the first one, even though the first one wouldn't have been evil if he hadn't been abandoned immediately on being born by his terrible, terrible parent. Like, if you're going to bring something not only into the world, but back into the world, and then think, what have I done? I need to go be catatonic in Switzerland for a bit. Oh no, he was already in Switzerland. He didn't start having distress-induced periods of catatonia until a little bit later. What he does 
in fact, on creating the creature is look at it, go, oh god, that's awful. Go to bed, have some nightmares, and then just leave the house. He's not especially a nice person, is Victor Frankenstein. He's a bit of a shithead. If I'm honest, crimes committed by Victor Frankenstein creates a creature, abandons a creature, decides not to give the creature the one thing he's asked for, having had it explained to him very eloquently why said creature has so far done, you know, a little bit of violence, one item of violence, assumes that having done this one item of violence, because he was thoroughly traumatised, that this means that the creature is absolutely irrevocably fundamentally evil rather than, you know... Not having a good day. Committing an act of vengeance against the person who created and then abandoned him. And then, and this is my favourite bit, when the creature goes, you've deprived me of my mate and therefore I'm going to do the worst possible thing to you. Victor goes, oh, that means it's definitely going to kill me rather than thinking for a, even a moment about anybody else and thinking, oh, it might go after my loved ones. I curse you, father, for you have taken away a partner for me. I will do an evil thing unto you. Is he going to take away my... me? No, Victor. Much worse. Can you think of a single thing that might be worse than that? You know, you keep talking about this woman you really love? Anyway. For a medical genius, Victor Frankenstein is not a smart man. He was like... 20 when all this went down. He wasn't even a doctor. Honestly. Hadn't even finished his undergrad. Anyway, this is very little to uh, really dig into the model that Dartmouth College produced to try and, like, project if this was to have happened, what kind of population growth a colony of Frankenstein-esque creatures reproducing and outcompeting humans in South America would have had, and they reckon that it would completely supplant humanity in 4,000 years. But I think the main point here is Victor Frankenstein is not to be trusted. And if you're not listening to this show in order to occasionally hear me go off on long-winded rants about, I mean, anything, then, um, sorry, I guess, but not that sorry. About yarn, Victorian literature, the role of arts in science. Mental health. Politics. Feminism. I've got opinions. Well, this has all been... Maybe a little bit heavy. We have managed to find some science in this book. We've had bats and the parasites and the Frankensteins and all of that. But I think we've really missed what is the main message of Halloween. Sugar. Vast amounts of sugar. So let's have one quick throwback to the 2016 work of the American Chemical Society who have done us all a favour and calculated just how much is a lethal dose of Halloween candy. Their video is linked in our usual reading list, but if you're just after the raw numbers, which is, of course, where you come to us for the science. The lethal dose of sugar for the average American is about 5.4 pounds. So that's about two and a half kilograms. I mean, more than a stomach can contain, so you're probably all right. Go wild. As long as you're not having two and a half whole bags of sugar. Yeah, that should be okay. But hopefully we've not scared you off and you've made it through to the end. In which case, congratulations. You clearly have the kind of amygdala function that is good or bad. Whichever, you haven't got any fear, so well done you. If you would like to tell us what you're dressing up as this Halloween, 
send us pictures on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast. If you've any other comments, questions or concerns, please email them to us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to go trick-or-treating digitally and give us something good to eat, then you can send us some donations via ko-fi.com forward slash eureka nerd. That's ko-fi.com forward slash eureka nerd. And those donations help us to offset the costs of making and hosting the show. And we promise we're not using it to buy any body parts or lab equipment to make some kind of beautiful monster. But until next time, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.